The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. I'm going to pray and let's get rolling in uh, Psalm 57 and the Psalms in general. Father, uh, as we gather this morning, as Dale said, we come from all different kinds of backgrounds this week. Some of us are rejoicing, some of us are mourning. Some of us are doing pretty well, and some of us aren't really sure where we are. There are some of us in this room that uh, we're not really believers at all. We're not Christians at all. We're here because somebody asked us or just out of curiosity, or maybe we're going through a crisis, and so we decided we'll give this church thing a try. God, I pray that you would meet, meet each of us here this morning right where we are, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in power upon our hearts God, there's nothing profound that I can say. You know that I am an incredibly empty vessel, and I pray that you would, though, speak to us uh, as we uh, study your word, as we continue to sing this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're taking the month of July to go through uh, some of the Psalms. Uh, In case you don't know, the Bible is divided into two sections. The largest uh, section is called the Old Testament. That's the part that comes before Jesus is born. And uh, out of the Psalms, uh, the book of Psalms, by the way, this is just a pet peeve of mine. There's nothing really bad about this, but it's a book of Psalms, and each one is individually a Psalm. That's just a Put that in. And then also, just as we're, while we're at it, the, the, the last book of the Bible is not the book of Revelations, it's the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, Jesus Christ. So, anyway, just uh, so I'll just get that out there. Also, St. Augustine was the saint, St. Augustine is the city in Florida. I'm just putting that out there. I just for, put those feathers in your cap. Um, I'll, I'll quit being a, a geek and I will move on. It's the largest book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Uh, it's this really cool, uh, kind of an interesting book that kind of sets it apart from some of the other books in that it's a collection, as I mentioned, of individual Psalms. And they are uh, poetry, they are prayers, they are really songs. Uh, the book of Psalms was, a, it was the song book for the people of Israel. And uh, most, if not all of them, would be sung. And the way it would work is that kind of, if you think about it, before we had ways to record music uh, and to disseminate it, so before radio or uh, like I can remember, uh, you guys can't remember, this is making me sound really old to you, but cassette tapes and uh, CDs that we used to actually have physical copies of music that we listened to or MP3s or whatever, you know, other way that we disseminate music. Like before that happened, uh, you know, if you think about it, you couldn't like know tunes, right? And so like you would have, there wouldn't be a, a million, like I carry two million songs in my pocket, right? Or how many of her like Spotify and Apple Music and all those have, like I carry all that in my pocket, but there's no way that they could carry that around. And so there would be like a number of tunes and they would, they would learn them and kind of pass around village to village, city to city, and like somebody in your family that played music would learn these tunes. And then when somebody would write uh, uh, lyrics, when somebody would write a, 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 po- a poem, they would write it with perhaps a particular tune in mind that they would sing it to. And so you might have one particular song or piece of music, and there might be dozens of different uh, sets of lyrics that would go with it. And this book of Psalms are full of songs that they would do that with. 
Um, and there's lots of different types of psalms. Anybody ever read it through uh, a few times or read some different psalms? There's different types. Uh, one type, there's see some hymns. We sang a couple of hymns this morning. There'd be songs or psalms that declare the nature and character of God that would celebrate deeds that he did. So the, they would be like celebrating, like, you are awesome, you're amazing, you've done these awesome, amazing things. And then some psalms... Uh, were psalms of thanksgiving, we're thanking God for something in particular that he has done. It might be individually or corporately as a people. There's some other like kind of pe- peculiar psalms that were uh, particular to particular kind of uh, specialized uh, um, services that they would have, if you will, in the country of Israel. And then there's a the imprecatory psalms, which are some of my favorites. It, those are the ones where uh, often written by David, but some written by other people where David's saying, hey, God, this person has done me wrong. Bash their head in. Like, kill them and make it very public. Let their guts spill out all over the streets and so the people can see that they have done me wrong. If you, and I, that's what some of my favorite ones because they're really honest psalms, right? And that's what, one of my favorite things about the psalms is that they're full of honesty, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And the, the one that we're looking at today, though, is Psalm 57, is what is called a psalm of lament. And uh, those are the psalms that contain uh, questions and complaints and mourning towards God. Which is understandable for this psalm, because the beginning, if you look at that title before it starts, it says, To the choir master." According to "Do Not Destroy," which would be a uh, we think would be a tune that it would be sung to, a miktam or miktam or don't correct me, Cam. Just pretend I said it correctly. Of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So David was. Uh, uh, it's a pretty cool story. I'll run through real fast. The first, the first king of the nation of Israel was Saul. He was big. He was strong. He said he stood head and shoulders above all his countrymen. The, the people, when God chose him to be king, the people said, man, this looks right to us. And, but Saul became king, and after a while, even though he started out really strong, he started to kind of get, uh, get, kind of get uh, feel pretty good about himself and think that he could decide the best way to do things. And after a while, God got tired of that, and he said, look, I need a king that's going to do what I tell him to do. is going to obey me. He's not going to, not going to think that he's like a really big deal. Saul was like, uh, Saul was like, hey, like, I'm kind of a really big deal. I get to choose my own direction. And so out of the most unlikely family, out of the most unlikely of tribes, the most unlikely son is picked and his name is David. And the prophet Samuel comes and anoints him king, which is kind of a, puts David in a weird position because he's a young kid and there's already a king still Saul in charge. And so you fast forward, Saul kind of meets up with, with uh, uh, David meets up with Saul. Uh, he, <coughs> excuse me, he uh, gets, he, he, Saul's having a d- difficult time. He's having some emotional issues, some mental issues, and they figure out that like music kind of calms him down. And so David will come in and he'll play because he's a musician. Later on, he becomes a warrior, but right now he's a musician. He's like a warrior poet, uh, which is pretty, pretty a warrior poet king, which is a pretty cool mix when you see them all together. But he comes and he plays music for King Saul, and it kind of soothes him. And so he starts to become like he starts to serve in his household. And then like this guy named Goliath, you guys have probably heard the story. He comes and he's terrorizing the country and David comes in and he gets real angry about that and he picks up his sling and David is 
pretty bad. Like, he, he's playing music, like, so he's a musician, but he's not probably wearing, like, skinny jeans and, like, wearing scarves around his neck because he was a pretty tough guy. He says, like, hey, I have killed a bear with my bare hands. I have killed a lion with my bare hands. And so God would deliver a Goliath into my hand just as he did them. And he takes a sling and a rock and he just flings it and he flicks him right in the middle of the head and he kills him. And then if that's not enough, he goes and cuts off his head and carries it. And I mean, this is like Braveheart stuff, right? Carries, carries Goliath's head, a big old head to the king in his hand. And so the people get really excited about David and they start to sing songs about him. They say, say Saul has slain his thousands, which is a good thing, but David has slain his 10,000. So he starts to get popular. Then Saul gets jealous about David. And so he, uh, he first he's kind of get jealous. And then in the midst of this whole thing, David befriends Saul's son, which is the heir apparent. And Jonathan, which is, David, which is Saul's son and David's best friend, he like starts to prefer, he can see like God has chosen David to be the next king. He starts to prefer him. Saul's getting jealous about David and he starts to, he tries to kill him a couple of times and it builds it to the point where he, decide, he decides he is going to put it into this. He is going to absolutely kill David and David runs. When David runs, he ends up alone in a cave. And he's laying there, and later on, his family would hear he's there, and they're going to join him. And then it says, like, it's, it's not even a whole lot of comfort that even the people that start to join him in, in the cave, it says, like, they were, the, they were the outcasts of society. They were the ones that nobody else really wanted. It ended up being David's mighty men, but at this point, they wouldn't be. But David's lying alone in a cave. And he had to be wondering... Like, God, what in the world are you doing? Like, like, it would be cool to be king, but at least before all this happened, and I didn't ask for this, at least before all this happened, I was like, being able to shepherd dad's sheep and hang out in the field, and I was writing music and playing music, and at least I had a pretty peaceful, decent life. But ever since, you have seen seen fit to anoint me as the next king of Israel, my life has not gone easy. It's been very difficult, and now it has come to the point that I'm estranged from my family. My best friend's dad is trying to kill me. By the way, in the midst of this time, he's also married Saul's daughter, Michael. So like, he's separated from her. He's separ- his, his best friend's dad, his father-in-law, the king, is trying to kill him, and he's left alone now in this cave. And I can imagine night falling, and he would probably be uncomfortable. It would be dark. It might be cold. He's probably hungry. He might be thirsty, and he feels totally alone in the world. You ever felt that way? Maybe you weren't in a physical cave, but you ever been in a moment where you felt utterly and absolutely alone? When you felt the wheels were coming off of your life? And David, the poet, he writes a psalm of lament. The definition in the dictionary of lament a lament means to, uh, or to lament means to mourn aloud, to express sorrow, mourning, or regret, 
to regret strongly. A lament or a lamentation is a passionate expression of grief. Often in music, poetry, or song, the grief is most often born of regret or mourning. I don't think that we lament enough. Because I don't think we have to. Because unlike David in this circumstance where he's alone in the cave, left to himself, he has nothing to look at, nothing to think about except lie there, maybe propping his head on a rock, and all he has to think about is how the wheels have come off and how he is alone. And he has nothing and nobody seemingly in his corner at this moment. But you and I, when we feel that way, we have dozens of things to distract ourselves with. Any moment that we feel any bit of uncomfortability, when we feel any bit, of, any bit of sadness roll over us, we can pull out our phone and text people and wait for somebody to respond. We can look on Twitter or Facebook. Or we can peruse Snapchat. I, the, the, the other day, uh, I was supposed to be doing something. I said, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, but I said, I, you know, I look on Facebook, and the next thing I knew, I looked up, and 40 minutes had passed of looking at, I don't even like Facebook. I find it very excruciatingly dull. Like it's full of like pictures of things that I wouldn't care to look at otherwise and uh, stupid quotes and crazy, like uh, like the, cr- the crazy parts of both political parties on both ends, like alleging that, you know, this person's born of the devil or this person's like taking their country to hell in a handbasket and it's all just kind of just stupid stuff going back and forth but I just sat there and I'm saying it's stupid but I sat there and spent 40 minutes looking at such stupid nonsense just in a, in a without even I thought it had been maybe five minutes 40 minutes I'd wasted doing that there's any number of things I can be in any room of my house and watch not just a movie or a TV show, but almost any movie or TV show I can imagine. I can, in any room of my house or in my car or on the beach, like binge watch a season of a whole show. I can pull up any one of 20 million songs at any given time and listen to them. There are any number of things to distract me at any given point, when I feel the slightest bit of sadness come upon me. I don't think we lament enough, because I don't think we have to. There are far too many things to distract us. I don't think we lament enough, because I think we're numb. It's not that bad things don't happen to us. It's that when it happens, there's any number of places and things that we can turn to that can turn our attention away from it. We're the most connected generation in history, and we're the loneliest generation in history. We are isolated by our social contacts on Facebook and Twitter. We know more about what is going on in each other's life, and yet have no idea what's going on in our own hearts, much less the hearts of the people who we are friends with. I don't think we lament enough because we're far too numb to the pain that's going on inside us. For for some of us, it's music. For some of us, it's entertainment. For some of us, it's social media. For for some of us, it's substance 
certain substances. Some of us, it is relationships with people. Anytime I feel alone or lonely or I feel the pain start rising up inside me because of what is going on, I start to chase a girl or chase guys or pop in porn. There's all kinds of number of things that can distract me. I don't think we lament enough because I think we're numb. We never really know what we're feeling or why because we never really have to wrestle with pain for very long. And that unhealthiness continues to fester under the surface like in kind of a not fully yet realized state so that we never have to face the deep and abiding sadness and disappointment that lies at the bottom of so many of our lives. Suffering comes to us, but we turn so many other ways. We paste, paste flimsy bandages on top of it so we don't have to see it, but it continues just to kind of fester underneath. Yet David at this moment had nothing else. It was just him and the roof of that cave and the invasive darkness that he was left to wonder what the heck is going on? What are you doing in my life? Why did you let this happen to me? How did this happen? Why is Saul, I've done nothing but to, to serve and to love Saul. I'm married to his daughter and I'm best friends with his son and yet he's trying to kill me. God, you, I would never even thought about being king until you anointed me king and now I'm hiding alone and nobody else is in my corner. Nobody else is here with me. I am here alone, left to myself. And you can see that in this psalm. Be merciful to me, O God. He says, the storms of destruction pass by. I'm crying out to you. My soul, down in verse four, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. He would start out talking about the circumstances, but he would really end up complaining to God, and then he would end up complaining about God to to God himself. Because really, if we let ourselves feel the pain and the sorrow whenever we're in the midst of suffering, the one person, the one thing that we truly take uh, issue with is God. Why are you letting this happen to me? What is going on? And I think that we would find that same thing, that same situation that David found himself in, this song of lament, this psalm of lament that rises from him if we stopped long enough. Some of us have found that as we've been forced into certain situations, we, we, we felt like there was nothing else. And we did feel that lament. These psalms of lament are a pattern for us, a help for us when we find ourselves in darkness. There's a couple of patterns that we can look at in this particular psalm, and we see it in the other psalms of lament. The first thing that happens is that David honestly shares his heart and mind. 
He doesn't sugarcoat what's going on. We see it here, as I pointed out, we see it in Psalms like Psalm 7. Where he's crying out in verse 3, O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there was wrong in my hands, if I had repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let my enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Verse 6, arise, O oh Lord. He's crying out to him. He's saying, why are you waiting? We see in Psalm, all throughout the Psalms where David or the, or the psalmist will say, how long will you wait, O Lord? I'm waiting for you and you're not doing anything. It it's almost gets to the point where it's, where it's almost crosses the line and sometimes perhaps it does in our own hearts where it's, where it's sinful. We feel that God has left us alone and we're, we're, we are accusing him of ignoring us and forgetting us. But the first assumption that we see is we see the psalmist assuming, we see David assuming that God hears and he cares. God's not like the president who gets millions of mail and email in every single, every single week and there's a staff of people who are filtering those out to find out what's most important and most interesting and then put it in front of his eyes. God in heaven, almighty creator God, who, by the way, has a lot of important stuff on his plate. He's like holding the universe together. He's like, he's like governing the, the roles and the paths of nations, yet that almighty creator God, he hears each individual prayer, and he cares. And so you and your seemingly, in the big grand scheme of things, your small issue that's going on, he hears it, and he cares about it. The second assumption that we see that's going on here is that uh, it's, even if we have sinful or doubting thoughts about God, man, it'd be better not to doubt God, right? It'd be better to always have confidence in God and knowing that he's looking out for your best and he's, he's, he's working all things together for good for those who love him, right? Always, everything that happened, like you just know like God's in this, God's working, he's in control. But sometimes we doubt. And what do we do with that doubt? Do we fake the funk and pray like a nice like Christian-sounding prayer. I had some friends of mine, we used to play right answer, real answer. Like, what's the right answer and what's the real answer? Like, there's a right prayer to pray in each circumstance, and there's a real prayer to pray in each circumstance. And because God hears and cares about what's going on in your life, and he hears and cares for your prayer, then you owe him to be honest and real about what's going on. And some of us, we don't stop long enough to know what's going on in our heart. We know that we're, there's some sort of vague sadness. There's a suffering going on. Something has happened that I don't like or it makes me sad. And I rush to other things to distract myself. And I don't let sit there long enough to realize what is going on in my heart. What am I really angry about? Why does this depress? Why has this made me depressed? What's going on in me? And then to take that real and honest emotion and to express it to God. Because even a sinful emotion or thought is best expressed to him rather than to distract yourself with other things or to pray the right answer. It's there in the wrestling that you discover what's really going on in your heart and you meet God. 
there in that moment. Don't jump past this. It's here that that wrestling happens, and it's so important. It's in the darkness. It's in the darkness. Listen to this. It's in the darkness that he brings to light the shallowness of our faith and our self-reliance. I'm sure David came face to face in that dark cave with his sense of self-reliance and the shallowness of his own faith. And he had to figure out in that darkness, what do I really believe about who God is and what he's doing in my life? David honestly shares his heart and mind And when we are experiencing suffering, that's the first thing that we should do. We have to stop and sit in it long enough to figure out what's going on there in my heart and mind. The second thing we see David doing in this psalm and in others is he rejects any other remedy. It's the whole tone of this psalm. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. In the cave, in suffering, in darkness that you and I experience, we'll be tempted to look for a shortcut. We can't be distracted at this point because those distractions are those flimsy bandages. We don't know and we can't know all that God is doing in suffering. So, so and here's, let's just talk about this. Like, here's why we're talking about suffering because I mentioned a couple weeks back, like everyone in this room, and here's the good news, you can go home and be happy about this. Everyone in this room is either in suffering right now, you're coming out of suffering or you're getting ready to head into suffering. That's the story of the human life. There's a, all this kind of reminds me of, and I don't endorse this guy in any sort of, any sort of way, but this, this one couple minutes is brilliant. Uh, Louis C.K. was on the Conan show, and he talked about why he hates cell phones. And he says it's because we are able to distract ourselves and we don't feel the deep sadness that's involved in being a human being. We would rather, we'd rather drive while texting and endanger our lives and the lives of people around us rather than face for a moment in the quietness of the car or why a sad song is playing and I'm thinking about what's going on in my life to really think about how sad I am at this very moment. We all live in this state of real kind of numbness, never really happy and never really sad, just kind of satisfied with our products that we're staring at all the time. But in the midst of your sadness, we should set aside all distractions and just let the realization that there is no other real hope, there is no other real help in life to be found except in God himself. And that was God's gift to David in the cave, that alone, uncomfortable, with his head on that rock, 
cold and tired and hungry and feeling absolutely isolated from the rest of the world, he had to come face to face with the idea that there is no other remedy for my help apart from God. He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples upon me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We don't know what God is doing in us and around us when we're in suffering, but we do know that he is working in us greater reliance upon him and him alone. The sweetest songs of the saints that have come before us are the discovery of the sweet sufficiency in the midst of great darkness, chaos, and bitterest of circumstances. The sweetest songs of the saints that have gone before us are of them discovering how sweetly sufficient God is in the midst of sadness and suffering and darkness. David just doesn't honestly share his heart and mind and then reject any other remedy. My only hope is from God. Other Psalms, he says, I look to the hills from whence come my help. That's the only source of my help is God alone. But then we see that he remembers his majesty. He remembers God's majesty. In the cave, in our great darkness, if we sit there and remember and realize that he is our only help, he is our only hope, then we will reject any other fake rescue. We'll we'll reject any other distraction that would sort of numb that pain, and we would look and long for God to show up and deliver me and help me. It is the absence in that midst of darkness that awakens in us the hunger and the thirst for what is real. I went to India whenever I was uh, 18, 19 years old. Somewhere in there, maybe 20. And uh, uh, India is a, it's a crazy place to go. It's an awesome and terrible place all at the same time. And, and I was there, we were there for three weeks. And I remember uh, the middle of the third week, we were driving through like uh, kind of this wilderness, kind of deserty, bushy kind of looking area, and we were cramped into this tiny little van, and uh, we were on this long like six-hour drive, and it was just we were in the midst of uh, we'd been on a plane, and now we were on a car, and then we were going to have to go back by plane and car. I mean, a train and car, and, and it was it was just really really rough. But I, I remember sitting there, and I was looking out the window, and it was it was now the two and a half weeks into the trip in India, and uh, I was you know we're all missing home, we're missing food, we want a hamburger, that you know there's all that kind of stuff. We're just sitting there, and I'm looking out the window, and, and two realizations came to me. As I was in India, they'd lost their baggage, they didn't have any, any comforts of home with me. There's two realizations that hit me, uh, not necessarily in this order, but, but one was, I like ranch dressing. Now, that sounds n- not very profound, and it's, and it's not, but, but this is, is news to me because up to this point, I hated ranch dressing. I thought it was terrible and gross. But for some reason, I have no idea how this worked. We're driving through the bush of India. I'm looking out the window, and I think, you know what? 
if I ever get back to the United States, I'm going to put ranch dressing on everything. I just think that sounds awesome. And I did. I came back. I loved ranch dressing. I dipped everything in it. And the second realization that came to me was, I love Megan Morgan. I love her. I miss her. Like, I think I want to really marry her. So again, not in that order, Durant's dressing and Megan. <laughs> but it was the absence that made me realize I love both of those things. <laughs> and, it's when, and it's whenever we are in the middle of suffering and darkness, when we feel alone and hurting, and we wonder if our life will ever be whole, that what should happen is we begin to long for the real thing. And all of a sudden, the fakes don't seem sufficient any longer. Chasing girls or guys or numbing myself with all kinds of media all of a sudden seems pointless. And I start to long. My soul begins to long for awe the one who is truly majestic and powerful. I begin to long for the real thing. I begin to hunger and thirst in the midst of the cave for the real thing. David cries, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 8, awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In those moments, when we begin to long for that, he will reveal himself to us and his majesty will stir our dry and dull affections and his majesty will give us confidence in the face of overwhelming circumstances. All of a sudden you remember that your God is the God who made the heavens and the earth and though your heart is breaking and though your circumstances are falling apart and you don't have enough money to pay for your bills and you've lost your job or your husband has died or you have cancer, you got that call, you're are strange from your parents that you think your life will never be whole again. You remember, my God is the God of all majesty, and I have confidence that he is powerful, and he, will, he is able to deliver me. And the last thing that will happen, after we remember his majesty, we see David doing it here. He recalls God's steadfast love. That word, that wording there, steadfast love, it would be special to the people of Israel. It means God's covenantal love that he has placed upon them. And if it's real, it's binding, it's everlasting. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, It is affected by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. 
God has placed his steadfast love, his covenantal love upon you. And it is affected not by your obedience or not because of your coolness or your pedigree or where you come from. His steadfast love is, based, is placed upon you and is sure and real and abiding because it's worked by the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He paid for that love to be set upon you. He cut the covenant with the Father himself by his blood on the cross. And whenever you remember that, you think, man, that doesn't change. That doesn't move. God is not only powerful and mighty, but he is loving towards me. And that is a permanent, abiding, everlasting, never giving up, always after me kind of love. And it's certain, it's held solid, not by my actions, but by the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And that steadfast love, verse 10, is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Therefore, I know that God not only is able to deliver me, but he will most certainly deliver me. And I know he will because I can look back at the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf and know that he would not do that if he wasn't going to take care of me now in this moment. So here's the question for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you kind of grew up in church and you kind of know all the right answers, but you know, like, I'm not really a believer. I'm not really a Christian. Or maybe there's no pretenses about it. You just know you're not. Here's my question for you this morning. Are you self-medicating? Whenever you feel that pain and sadness of life, do you place all kinds of bandages and all kinds of your own kind of, your own kind of cures on top of it. And my question is, how's that working out for you? My, my great-grandmother used to mix up this thing called, she called, because I'm from the, from the country, she was this thing called a POTUS. Anybody ever heard of a POTUS? She would take like red clay and she would pour like all kinds of stuff into it, including kerosene. And then she would bind that up in a, like a cloth. And if you had like a, a sprained ankle or something wrong with your leg, she would like wrap that around your leg. And it was supposed to like, it was supposed to, she said it drew out the poison that was inside the causing the problem. She, it, it didn't work. It was self-medication. It was like an old wives' tale. If you can put that POTUS on there, it's not doing anything. How's your self-medicating working for you? All the distractions that you distract yourself from the real sadness. Is it curing anything? Couldn't it be that what your soul is longing for in the midst of the darkness is the one who is full of majesty and steadfast love towards you? And would you bow your knee this morning to him? Maybe you are a believer this morning. 
And I encourage you, we're not talking about running towards suffering, like we're supposed to be seeking out like some sort of a sick kind of religion that seeks out suffering and pain. But here's my encouragement to you as a believer. Don't waste it either. Let it have its work. When you encounter sadness and disappointment, when life throws you a curveball, when it's tough, when you're depressed, when it seems dark, when it seems like you're in your own cave, wrestle there. Wrestle with what you're thinking and feeling, not only about your circumstances, but really about God. Reject any other remedy for you. And then let that build a thirst and a hunger in you for the real thing until in the midst of sadness, in the midst of your tears, you stand in awe. And then you find a real hope in the steadfast love of Jesus. It's in the cave that God meets us. For it's the steadfast love of God that turns a lament into a song. It's the steadfast love of God that turns a lament into a song. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have communion together. And we're going to remember the steadfast love of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's the meal of the covenant where we remember what he did for us on our behalf. And let us remember how majestic and powerful he is at the same time to secure that for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.